we began this series uh, uh, not too many weeks ago, and uh, then I introduced the idea of prayer as an ascent. It's a climb upward. Uh, the, the whole of our faith is an ascent. Jesus uh, is the pioneer of our faith. He has already uh, paved the way, and of course, he has uh, already ascended. And so it makes sense that uh, uh, we're all uh, headed in an upward direction. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 15, and it opens with who may dwell on your holy hill. And the metaphor is that God is up, up there. I recently bought a book. uh, Eventually, I want to preach a few sermons out of the book of Leviticus. Uh, This book is called A Biblical Theology of the Book of Leviticus. You know, I do that. I, I buy books, uh, obscure uh, theological topics. And I, I bought this book for, among other things, uh, one of the reasons is that the author, in his uh, laying out his understanding of the book, uh, depicted Leviticus as an ascension. That at the end of the book, when the people of God are in the sanctuary, they are up in the heavenlies. And when they are up in the heavenlies in worship, and then they leave, you know, they're a little bit more changed. We have that in the New Testament as well, when in the book of Hebrews, and I've mentioned this before, uh, where the author of the Hebrews talks about what happens, for example, right now in our public worship service, when the author says, you have come in worship to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to immeasurable angels in festal gathering, and the the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. And if you can imagine in your own mind that that is what's happening right now, even as we are seated at 251 East Stern Boulevard, that we are being joined together with all the other saints around the world today in this time, as well as all the saints who are in heaven worshiping God with the angels and Jesus is there and and those saints that have already gone ahead of us. The spirits of righteous men made perfect is the reference to them are with us. And we go there with the knowledge that for for the hour or so that we're here, when we leave this place, we, we leave a little bit more changed. I'm reminded of what happened when the four children stepped out of the wardrobe. And most of the book is about their journey into Narnia and they, all the, the battles that they uh, fight and the, the length of time they're there. And at the end of the book, they're already, you know, in, maybe they're depicted in their 20s and 30s and adult uh, men, adult women. And they see you know, what is that yonder lamppost? And they discover that it's, they fall back through the wardrobe into the room that belonged uh, to the house of the professor. And they're the same age they were when they went into the, 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 the wardrobe in their own thinking just a moment ago. But then in Narnia time, they were there for decades. And they are the same age. They're uh, the, the same age of the same height, the same, you know, grammar school uh, type age. And yet, while they're on the, the same on the one hand, they have changed on the other. That's what's supposed to happen when we worship. And that's supposed to happen when we pray. 
we meet God. And today's text from John 17 is the Scripture's version of Yosemite's El Capitan. We're at the bottom and we're looking up. This monument of prayer is what we shall depict just a little bit. We're going to get one little strand of it for us today. Let me read our text. Uh, it's in your bulletin. Jesus is praying. I am praying for them, he says. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, speaking to the Father. And this verse is set aside, because this is the verse we're going to focus on today. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As, I sent you, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. <clears throat> Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 48 sermons on John 17. He said that if we had nothing but John 17, if we were marooned on an island and all we had were these 26 verses, he says, if we had nothing but John 17, we surely would have more than enough to sustain us because here our Lord has given us an insight into our whole position and into everything that is of importance and of value to us while we're on this earth. Uh, it would be a great homework assignment for you if you were thinking about what, what you can do for this next week or two for your own personal Bible reading to go to John 17 in your own Bible, maybe get another version and have it side by side and read it and meditate on it and begin to pray the prayers that Jesus prays here. This, of course, is a prayer he's praying before his crucifixion, before his resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. But uh, the content of this prayer surely takes up much of his intercessory work for his people. And so we're going to focus on the second half of verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may, that they may be one even as we are one. This is the first actual request in this prayer. <clears throat> of course, uh, those words uh, should bring you uh, great comfort. Those words are prayed here in John 17 that he uh, uh, keep them. But now he is going, he's praying that the Father will now do the keeping. The Son has been keeping them until now, he says. And now he's praying that the keeping responsibility be turned over to the Father himself. Uh, Paul will later write that the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus sent, brings the sealing ministry. And that sealing ministry is the Holy Spirit's contribution to our being kept. And so we have here and in Paul all three members of the Trinity working to ensure that none of you is lost. You know, if you are one of those people today uh, that struggles 
uh, with assurance. Let me just ask you to pay attention to this. You know, Jesus already spoke about this in John chapter 10. He says, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. When Jesus spoke those words, uh, the religious leaders were offended by them. They took up stones to stone him. They were offended, but you should be comforted by these words. Uh, These words here are prayed out in John 17. Jesus had been doing the keeping while he was on the earth, and now he entrusts this ministry to the Father. What does it mean to keep them and to keep them in his name? Keeping in the name can either be keeping by the name. If you have a new international version, Bible in front of you. We're reading from the English Standard Version in the bulletin, but if you have an NIV, you'll notice that it is by the name, by the power of the name. That's how they have begun to interpret and and tease out this meaning. It also can be in the name, the way it is in our version, as in union with the name. I, I prefer that. The name of God is the full revelation of God. The full character of God was on display fully in Jesus. And of course, in a few minutes from this prayer, it is going to reach its apex on the cross. That means Jesus would be asking the Father to protect his followers by using the name, by being united to the power and character of the name, so that none will be lost. What does this matter? What does it matter? Well, it matters for the simple reason that God is staking his name on your making it. God is staking his name on your being preserved. God is staking his name on your making it into his home in heaven. Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. He cannot disown himself. Paul is not saying if we're faithless, if we have no faith, we would be saved. No, he's simply acknowledging the fact that our faith often is weak. Our faith sputters. Our faith falters. Our faith is broken. And so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit remains faithful uh, in order to keep us. He puts his name on it. He cannot deny himself because we are united to him. And therefore, if we can be lost, the Son can be lost. And of course, we know that is an impossibility. That's the beauty of this gift of salvation. That salvation is not merely forgiveness, and we have sung about that today. It's not merely about being declared righteous, and we've sung about that today as well. But it's also about being in union with him. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ, to be united to Christ, is to place yourself beyond ever being separated from Christ. To be in Christ puts puts you in a place where it is impossible to be lost. So let me just apply it to you just for a moment. Uh, It's a done deal for you if you have belonged to Jesus by faith. And yet he still, he still prays, and this is the mystery of it. You know, we might think that if it's already done deal, why pray? Well, Jesus doesn't think that. Jesus uh, prays urgently for you and for me. And because he prays for us, 
in spite of the fact he's already shown us that we belong to him by his sovereign grace. You know, we uh, should not uh, dismiss the ministry of prayer either. Prayer is central. Prayer is one of the means by which, according to 2 Peter, we make our calling and election sure. Jesus believes in the need for praying for us. And so uh, should we. That's the preservation in the name. Let's go to number two. Uh, uh, preservation from danger. I skipped over these verses. I read them, but I want to focus on them now. Verse 14. I have given them, he prays, your word that the world and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I ask, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Preservation from danger. He's praying for preservation in the name. That is where our preservation comes from. Uh, by being united to him in the name, all the, all the character of God is at our disposal to ensure that we are not lost. But then there are real dangers here. And he mentions one in verse 15, that we be kept from the evil one. Now, how does this actually work out? How does it actually work out this prayer from the evil one? Well, let me just uh, go back and just say, I'm going to quote a little bit from John Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, the Gospels are full of answers to that question, how, how, how we are guarded. And let me just give a couple of reasons why we know that. We, he guards us by teaching us. In the sense, that was the very purpose for his teaching, to instruct the disciples and instruct us in our relationship to him, that we might know what it means to be one that belongs to him. That is why he preached throughout the Gospels. He preached the Sermon on the Mount. He preached on the Beatitudes that we might know what his people are to be like. And by definition, we might know what his people ought not to be like. We should consider his teaching as a forewarning, as a forearming uh, that enables us to avoid the world and to, to arm ourselves against the flesh and to, do, uh, to match wits with the devil as we depend upon his wisdom and truth. And then there's also a warning. He teaches us, he warns us. There are solemn warnings in the Gospels for his disciples. The disciples often were excited but needed to be warned. In one instance in particular where they come back from a preaching mission and they have healed the sick and they have cleansed the lepers and, and they have cast out demons and they're thrilled. And, he, and Jesus warns them by saying, don't rejoice in these things, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Teaching, warning, and then of course he rebuked them. He rebuked them for unbelief. He re rebuked them for a lack of understanding. He rebuked them for a lack of love. And this itself is an evidence of his love for his people when he teaches them, he warns them, and he rebukes them and us. Now, what do these have to do with our assurance? Well, I'm getting to that. I'm setting up something here because we need to look at this next verse. We skipped over it, but I'm going to focus on it now. Uh, let me just uh, lead into that by asking you, are you receptive to his teaching? Now, are you a student of the Bible? I don't expect you to be as much of a student as I am. Uh, I am paid to be good. You're good for nothing. Just kidding. Well, you're, I, I'm paid. I, this is my job. You know, but I, I would hope that you would make it at least some measure of your week to read. 
And I'm not saying you have to read the Bible. I think you should read the Bible. I think, but sometimes you can read what people have said about the Bible as a way to enrich you, to ground you, to, to bring you. Are, are you receptive? Are you receptive to his warnings when you come across a verse that says, you know, take heed and watch out for greed? Think greed. Wow, am I greedy? You know, no, I'm not greedy. Look at people, like, people who, who you know, live and they drive these really, really expensive uh, automobiles. They might have two or three or four or five. Those are the guys. Well, you know, we compare ourselves with people who have more so that we don't feel so bad about where we are, where our station is. But why don't you, why do you do that? Why don't you compare yourselves with people who have less? All I'm saying is that when you hear a warning, watch out for greed, does that make you stop and think, okay, let's meditate on that. Greed involves the interior of our lives. Greed involves the impulse of our life. Greed involves the idea of coveting. Do we know that about ourselves? Are we aware of those impulses uh, to to use money and to use things and to buy things? You know, this is all, we all struggle with that. But when the warning comes to you in a scripture, you know, do you stop and think and, uh, and, and, you know, when you're rebuked, I want to assure you that I don't like being rebuked any more than you like being rebuked. Uh, but when you are rebuked, you know, does it finally, okay, let me just slow down. It didn't come off the best. The person could have been a little more diplomatic, could have been more, he could have eased into it or she could have. Okay, but the fact of the matter is, you know, they're right. I need, I need to own this. You know, are you like that? There's a reason why I'm asking that, those questions. Notice verse 12, while I was with you, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. I don't know if the disciples really picked up on this. They surely picked up on it later. But the son of destruction was not in the room to hear this prayer. The son of destruction, some of your versions say the son of perdition. Uh, This man had already left Of course, this is a reference to Judas Iscariot. Uh, Judas was not there to hear this prayer. Earlier in the the meal, Jesus went up to him, and he said to the disciples, one of you will betray me. And and they began to wonder, what what are you talking about? Who who is going to do that? And they began to ask, and and the the, the beloved disciple whispered over to Jesus and said, who is it, Lord? And he said, is the one with whom I dip the bread and give it to him. And so he dipped it and gave it to Judas And then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And he left the room. And the disciples didn't understand it. They thought, well, maybe there was some private conversation with him to go and give money to the poor. Later on, of course, he mentions this son of destruction. I don't think they fully understood what what, uh, uh, they were talking about. But let's spend a few minutes talking about Judas. Judas was a disciple of Jesus. Judas was an apostle of Jesus. Judas was an ambassador for Jesus. But Judas, all along, was lost. Judas was a disciple only in external conformity, not from the heart. The rest of the disciples, although their faith was weak and frail and uh, they had faults and many foibles, their faith was sincere. But Judas's was never. Judas uh, was never born again. Judas was never born by the Spirit of the living God. Judas might have thought he was a sincere follower and disciple at some point of the game, but uh, Judas was not. So let me ask you to think about Judas for a second. And let me just say parenthetically that I know 
in bringing up the name of Judas, some of you are going to get a little squeamish. I know there are people that feel believers, genuine believers, people who are themselves convinced of their faith, who at times begin to doubt, who think, I'm, one, I'm a Judas, who think, surely I know that I'm, I'm one of the ones that Jesus passed over. You know, we're going to be talking about John's and Jesus' version of the doctrine of election. The language of Jesus in John for election is, he says things like, the ones that you have given me shall be mine. That's John's language for election. Paul speaks about it in those terms, election. But here, the language is, those whom the Father has given me. That's the language of Jesus for election. And so we then come to Judas. Judas was uh, a follower of, from the beginning. And how, how does this happen? And so I know some of you might be thinking, I'm getting a little afraid of where this preacher's going. He's taking me. Well, bear with me. My aim is to point out Judas here, but also to comfort you and to assure you. Well, let's look at Judas. Judas, as early as John 6, Jesus knew that one of the 12 was to be a traitor. He says in John 6, verse 68, Simon Peter answered him. This is one of the most uh, momentous statements Peter ever said. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. But then he answered Peter and all of them this way. Did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. Now, I'm sure at the time of these words, they didn't know exactly what he meant. But later on, John wrote, he said, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Why does Jesus mention Judas here in John 17? Well, there are four reasons why he mentions his name in John 17, or mentions him uh, in a kind of cryptic way in John 17. First one is that this prayer is prayed audibly. The disciples heard and could remember this prayer and that the name of Judas, although not mentioned, would eventually be reminded him by the Spirit that this was a reference to Judas, the son of destruction, the son of perdition, and that the disciples might be reminded and that you might be reminded that there are some whom the Father has given to Jesus to save. Judas was not among those. The rest of the disciples were. So that they may be reminded that even all their foibles, and the disciples were full of them both before and after the, the resurrection, but that what keeps them is God's grace in Jesus Christ, the fact that the Father gave the Son those whom he should save. A second reason why uh, he's mentioned here is that, that the disciples would know in advance that when it happens, they would not be surprised that it was Judas who did the betraying. Eventually, in a few minutes, it was going to happen. Another reason is that you might observe and that the disciples might observe that the deity of Jesus now is coming out into the open, for he knew in advance that it was going to happen. Another reason is that the disciples might give more close attention to the Scripture, for it says that the Scripture might be fulfilled. What is the lesson here? What is the lesson here? The lesson here is that mere membership does not save now, I mentioned that, uh, that some of you might be concerned or worried. You might start feeling a little unsettled. Let me just remind you of the kind of person a Judas would be. 
What kind of a person would be a Judas? Well, let me give you four observations here about Judas. Uh, of course, I mentioned already, but, you know, a characteristic of a Judas in John chapter 12, verse 6, that Judas was regularly dipping into the common purse. He stole money. He stole money from the church. He stole money from the treasury. He was the treasurer of the, the twelve, and he would steal money. Now, why would a person steal money? Why would a person do that? Well, let me just ask this question in a different way. Why do people sacrifice their money? Why do, they, why do they give their money? Well, people give money because they believe in a cause. You know, today we're in an election season. And you might have been already been approached to have uh, signs put in your lawn. You know, there are people out there volunteering their time, canvassing the area, making phone calls, all on their own. They also might be giving money to their political party and their political cause because they believe in it. They're willing to sacrifice their time and sacrifice the things they could be doing elsewhere for the sake of a cause they're committed to and even give their money to see their mission and their cause succeed. Well, why does somebody steal? Well, the opposite would be the truth for someone like Judas. He stopped believing in it. He no longer believed in it. He became cynical about the mission of Jesus. Became cynical about who Jesus is now that he has gotten a better look at him. He used to be persuaded of the cause, and that's why he started. But now he's thinking, I I have wasted these three years, and I have at least recouped some of it. And so he is already committing himself to undermine the mission of Jesus by his thefts. You know, later on, Jesus would say, Did I not choose you, one of the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? Now, what does this mean, speaking of Judas, that he is a devil? Well, it seems to me that the devil who resists Jesus, that Judas likewise started to resist Jesus. That the devil certainly keeps Jesus at arm's length, which is kind of a metaphor for saying he's not willing to embrace Jesus and follow him. Eventually, so did Judas. That Judas began to challenge Jesus, to question Jesus, even to defy Jesus, because that's what the devil does. Now, we have no record of Judas doing that openly, but he must have been doing it inside. He must have been doing it in a way that eventually betrayed what his real thoughts and intentions were by his uh, thievery. Paul talks about this very thing in 2 Corinthians 4 by being, as being blinded by the God of this world. And, and, uh, and, and Judas, having already been blinded, began to compound his blindness by his cynicism and his theft. And then in John 13, later on, uh, John records that Satan put something into the mind and heart of Judas. Judas was already receptive. Judas was even cooperative with the wishes and will of the devil, so much so that he tried to salvage his wasted three years by trying to gain something that he lost, and he figures out the only way to do it is to sell him out. And so I think I'll go and see what I can do to salvage these three years. Then later on in John 13, it says, when he had taken the morsel that Jesus handed him, Satan entered into him. There's a progression of allegiance with the devil from attitudes that he never challenged to actions. All the while, he's keeping it to himself, never bringing it to Jesus and asking for clarification all the way until his plans are executed 
and in full cooperation with the will and intention of the devil. You know, to what degree did, did, uh, did, did Judas know? I, I don't really know. But surely you can see that he was aligning himself to the cause of the devil. Let me uh, uh, speak to you that might be a little unsettled by now. Preacher, hurry up and get over this Judas portion. Uh, let me remind you of something here. You think, okay, it could happen to me. In fact, I know it's happening to me, you think. <clears throat> let me go back to those questions that I asked you earlier. The question about teaching. Are you open to the Lord's teaching? Are you open to the Lord's warnings? Are you willing to accept his rebukes? See, Judas was not. And I think there's a real sense in which even people that are really afraid of being a Judas are willing to receive the teaching of the Lord. They're willing to receive the admonition of the Lord. They're willing to receive the rebuke. They're painful. I don't like them any more than you do. But nevertheless, after a while, you realize, okay, that person is right. They delivered it poorly. They hurt me. They went overboard. But when I get right down to it, the Lord was speaking to me in this person, and I don't want to disappoint him. You know, you all have done that. Let me say to you that are struggling with assurance, I know you've done that. Judas didn't. Judas didn't. Judas uh, challenged the Lord. Judas uh, opposed the Lord. Judas kept his brewing, stewing heart from the Lord. And I know that you who are struggling with assurance, don't do that. You're getting back to this prayer by Jesus. It is, it, it, it want, the Lord wants to impress upon us that uh, mere teaching is not enough. As good as membership is, membership is not enough. You must be born again. You must be born by the Spirit of God. God must come in by His Spirit and open your eyes. Such a person thinks, okay, I'm surely a Judas. Let me ask you, have you believed in Jesus as your righteousness? Have you? You might think, okay, well, I hear these, these voices of condemnation. Hold on, let me just ask you, have you believed in Jesus for your righteousness? Have you believed in Jesus for your substitution? That on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sins, and Paul says, by that, he has forgiven all our transgressions. There is not a single solitary one that is any more pinned on you. But you think, those voices are loud. They're, they're, they're reminding me. Okay, let's, let, me think, let me talk about that for a moment. They're loud, aren't they? Yes, they are. Let me ask you to talk to those voices and say, you know what, if you knew all the reasons for your accusing me, you would find many more. But I want you to be reminded, voice, that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for me. And I hear your voice, but there is a voice that is louder. I hear your voice, but I want you to know that there's no warrant for you to say that to me. Absolutely none. Jesus Christ has paid for my sins. Jesus Christ has clothed me with his righteousness. Jesus Christ has made a place for me. And that's why, you know, we give you these things so you can take these songs and sing them to yourselves. Sing the gospel until those voices that are there, maybe on Sunday day they're stronger than others, they begin to be brought under the power of the cross. And you begin to live more and more free.
We need that, do we not? If you have one of those consciences that are loud, those accusations are loud, as they are from time to time with me, we need to be reminded that we're already clothed with His righteousness, that He has already paid the price. All of our sins, past, present, and future, are already expunged, taken away, wiped clean. That is who we are in Jesus Christ. Well, lastly, very quickly, preservation for eternity. Preservation in the name, preservation from danger, preservation for eternity. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. There is in this last uh, comment uh, an anticipation that we shall be brought into union. One man said, when a man is going on a long journey, he will find time on the eve of his departure for a quiet talk with his family. And if he is a man of God, he will end by commending to God uh, not only himself and his journey, but also the family whom he leaves behind. You know, we've had to do that before. He anticipates this reunion. He is praying with the knowledge that he is going to be leaving them. Now, I've always found it hard to say goodbye to my children. Uh, you know, I have this Facebook thing where every single once in a while you get these reminders. You know, I, uh, ten years ago we posted a, a, a picture uh, uh, Caleb was just a brand new baby, and uh, uh, Kathleen was home with him, and we had uh, driven Tori to her first year away at college, at Dort College, and we drove there, and, and uh, we uh, unloaded. Uh, Jeremy and Jason and Monica were there, and we unloaded everything in her dormitory, a brand new dorm. We took a picture out in the dorm, out in the front, and, uh, and the like, and, and then, you know, okay, I say goodbye. I'm like, uh-oh, this is, this is where I start to cry. You know, if you had to do that, uh, if you have older kids, you know, but if you have younger kids, that's going to happen to you. <laughs> we have to say goodbye. You know, you've done all the packing, all the preparation. You've, you've planned and purchased and packed, and you get over there, un- undo it. You begin to r- arrange the room, and you might even actually go to the cafeteria for a, a, a dinner there, and you realize, oh, the kids can have Fruit Loops and Apple Jacks for, for dinner, you know, at this place, you know, and you realize, okay, well... At some point, you got to say goodbye, and uh, you do, and it hurts. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is saying goodbye uh, to his disciples. His farewell is full of these feelings, because in a few minutes, he's going to go into the Garden of Gethsemane. And then after that, he's going to go to his trial. And after that, he's going to go to his torture, his beatings, his mockings, the spitting upon him, uh, the, 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 his disfigurement. And then he's going to go to the cross. And then on the cross, at last, the Father will glorify him by putting him to death. So that this prayer, this very prayer, can be made true for you. Keep them. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn based on Psalm, uh, on John 17. And the first two stanzas of the hymn he wrote depicts the words of Jesus, summarizing the words of Jesus in this prayer. And the last two stanzas of the hymn summarizes our response. So let me read them to you. A charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, a never-dying soul to save and fit it for the sky. That's what he's praying here for us. To serve the present age, my calling to fulfill. Oh, may it all my powers engage 
to do my master's will is the Lord's prayer. Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. And what is our response? Here it is. We pray in response. Arm me with watchful care as in thy sight to live. And now thy servant, Lord, prepare a strict account to give. Help me to watch and pray and still on thee rely. Oh, let me not my trust betray, but press to realms on high. Ascend. Ascend. Meet him there. He'll meet you. And he'll change you and empower you and equip you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this momentous prayer. And I'm reminded now uh, that you have prayed this for all of us. Uh, Perhaps there's somebody here today who is uh, uh, feeling very, very discouraged. Would you remind this person that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have made a pact together to bring them all the way home? And yes, we must pray, and yes, we must believe, but even those are gifts which God gives to us, that God gives to His people, that enable us to make our calling and election sure. Lord, would you be pleased to prosper us as we look to you, as we continue our quest to know you better in prayer by ordering our lives in prayer. Uh, May we more and more be a praying people and draw near to you and then draw near to you for the sake of others and draw near to you for the sake of the mission that these people for whom Jesus prayed have yet to be found. Help us to participate in your great cause. And we'll give you all the glory for it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.